Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. Hi, Stephen. How are you today? Yes, I'm good. Thank you, Paul. And you? Very good. Uh, we have good weather and the day we're recording. So that's uh, very confusing for people who are listening in a rainy day in London. And we have a guest who also has good weather today. Would you like to introduce yeah, her? I'm delighted to have Maureen Taylor from SNP joining us today. Hello, Maureen. How are you? It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So, Stephen, can you let us know in the context of our framework, why are we inviting Maureen today? So this week, we had a really interesting day when we looked at all of our portfolio, and we do this biannual stack rank. And we consider all the kind of various challenges our portfolio have and really try and draw some conclusions in terms of, you know, key challenges. And one thing that comes up over and over again is, is the people challenge of, of scale. And when I think about the journey that our founders go on, you know, we're investing in them at the startup phase. Maybe they've got 10 people. They're going through a rapid iteration and growth phase. And in the grow up period, they may be growing to 100, 200, 300 people. And as they scale to some of the size of our portfolio, companies are pushing 600 to a, to a thousand. And for many of our founders, understanding how to really build high-performing teams when growing that fast is something they've never done before and many of them struggle with. And so that's why I'm delighted to have Maureen here from SP because this is the kind of work she's been specializing in for quite a while with some of the world's biggest and best recognized technology brands. Maybe, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, Maureen. Well, we started in 1989. So the first content stuff that we worked on was helping a company with a presentation called The Internet is Here to Stay. And nobody believed it at the time, especially <laughs> in the technology industry, people who are dedicated to building something and usually founders who want to build something are trying to make the world a better place. I mean, they're actually dedicated to doing something that is good. We've been working with them since then, 1989, long time. Do you want to tell us about some of the brands you work with? I guess I can say names of companies. We don't talk about yeah. the actual people. Because you know that movie, The King, yeah. The King's Speech, that guy who helped the king, you never knew about him, right? He got to be friends with the king forever. So that's how we kind of are. So we don't we don't get marketing or advertising kudos because we brag or jibber jabber about these important people, but I can reference companies. Yeah, of course. So going back in 1989, Sun Microsystems and Oracle, Microsoft, and as they grew up, the next phase was Google and Facebook, and then there's Dropbox and Asana, and now there's a whole new world of startups with robotics and artificial intelligence. So really following the technology industry through their generations. And so if I when. kind of categorize from my perspective, the kind of work you've done, you help give the founders a voice. You help them communicate clearly within their organizations, and, and you help them really kind of create high-performing companies. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yes, it is. We consider ourselves founder advocates. So the people that actually want to build something, they're the ones with the vision. And usually if they have a co-founder, we help them work that situation out because that's a very important relationship as they begin to build culture. 
And usually people who want to build something aren't as conscious of the human operating system, the human operating system. So we help them with that because actually it is people who will continue to help them build what they're building for the world. I'm going to jump straight in on that comment about founders not understanding the human operating system. That, that intrigues me. It's not that they don't understand it. They just don't realize it because they're focused on what they're building. So yes, that's fun to talk about because how you realize that is a key to then helping founders build a company because building a company means that you have to have people. How do you help them to realize this? How do you, how do you connect them with that, that fundamental challenge? Well, first of all, appreciating that, and I say this with all due respect, that people who build things are like artists. So it's any kind of art. There's a passion about it and there's a personality type. And especially when you're talking about a founder, there's a little bit of a crazy in a good way. They can't help it, right? So there's such a passion. And to me, they're very much like artists. So they have a consciousness that's different from everybody else. And first you have to connect with that, it can't be in a phony way because they can sniff that out right away, but a truly respectful way, because especially after all these years, these people do do magnificent things. And then you slowly but surely cajole them in a way that intelligence is also in other aspects of the universe, including the human operating system, because the people they hire, the connection to them, how they motivate, the culture, the values, all those things are also important. So it is a cajoling. It's like it's like hurting kittens a little bit in a direction because it's not intuitive to an artist who's dedicated only to their art. I like the way you, you refer to them as kittens, not, not cats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so at the very early stage, and, and you've worked with some organizations that have gone through quite explosive people growth. Let's say I've got 50 people, I've got 500 people, I've got 5,000 people. What stays the same and, and what, what changes? I think the hardest is the 42 to 56 number employee because you're going from a mean, lean, dedicated team where you eat together, shower together, sleep together, work together, sweat together, dream together. And when you get past a certain tribe number and it seems to be between 42 and 56, it's almost like puberty. And I'm not an ageist in any way, but puberty happens at a certain stage usually. And there's something that happens between 42 and 55. That's like puberty. You are so messed up that you don't know up from down and sideways. So to be able to, first of all, just like telling if you ever have children or if you have people that have children that are going through it, to say to them, oh, honey, you're going through puberty. Don't worry. It'll all be okay. It's the worst thing that you can do to somebody who's going through puberty. So that stage is when you do have to start thinking about organization and operational excellence in a way that supports the vision and the mission and the values. And it's a different drain on the brain. Also, you start to attract people that might have done something like this before to help you. And it's extremely awkward. 
So to traverse through that, that's the hardest part. That's harder than the 250. Each stage brings on new challenges, but I think the most difficult is that one. I've heard it kind of quite earlier and and a little bit later, but that's incredibly specific. 42 to 56. (laughs) What is it that that fundamentally changes at, at that point? It might be as simple as volume. With volume, nature of something changes. Just like when your hormones change, you actually go from being a child to a teenager, right? So there is something about volume. There's an edge of a the amount of people. Also, you might have a couple of engineers that work at home, or you have a group of people that are remote, and the only way that you communicate with them is through the phone or over Hangout. How you communicate that tribe feeling starts to break down a little bit, and how you hold that together. And then when you start to bring in people that have experience from other places, they bring their experience And many times how that's presented and received is a nightmare. So a lot of the work is to help them be able to pick the right people. Who are the right people with experience that should come in and help them set up either communication, order, operations that are the right people? A lot of people from big companies, when they look at a little company, they think it's adorable. Oh, my goodness, they're working for a big company and working for a small company would be so great. Then they get there. And it's a nightmare because they actually have to work harder than they've ever worked. And so there's all sorts of issues that take place at that time. You mentioned a couple of really interesting things in there. One, you you talk a lot about the tribe. Mm -hmm. And then you you talk about how we're bringing other people into this tribe. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that that tribes have is they, they have certain norms and accepted behaviors. They might have some shared DNA they might have some shared history and stories and legends. How does a founder go through the process of actually understanding the DNA of their tribe and then putting that into something practical that can help them to maintain the very best of that and bring more people in? So some founders are naturally, they understand this. Also, we work with founders to help them with this, that their values how they operate and what their culture is themselves is the key. It starts with them. It stays with them. It's successful because of that, that they start with if they're true to it. So what are the values? Like one of Google's was do no evil. I mean, that lasted, it still is true. I mean, their volume is so huge, but they meant it. I mean, they talked about it. They lived it. They tried to keep that alive. So from the very beginning, The culture and the values have to be established by the founders, and it has to be real to them, not something that's just words up on a board that people point at. Or when you get bigger, you go to a marketing brochure and you look at what the person's values are. It has to be real. It has to reflect that which they're building and the kind of people they want around them to take this to the world. Obviously, there's a process that they've either gone through intuitively or you've helped them on to to kind of define that culture. How do you then enable that to be part of actually the very fabric of of how we hire and how we operate on a distributed basis? So I started my business in Lisbon and I had 25 people. I grew to 50 and that was a fairly big challenge. Now I've got 150 and 100 of them are in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. 
how do they keep on top of that and keep that mm-hmm. really vibrant? Yeah, so that, and that's the hardest part because first of all, if you do have a code of behavior, so it's the code of behavior that represents the values, right? It's not what you say you're going to do. It's actually how you behave. So from the very beginning, the founders, the leadership group, as they start building their team, the code of behavior that fulfills those values is something that always comes back to. You always go back to it. You're always showing it, talking it, living it. Okay. Then as you get bigger and bigger, it it becomes somewhat diluted only because that's what happens with volume. But if the leadership because everything starts and stops with them, right? Working in a restaurant through school, there was this wonderful chef, his name was Salvatore. And sometimes I'd go in early in the morning to help him set up. And he always had the fresh catch. And he'd always had this great, big, huge, beautiful fish. And he'd always be sniffing the head. And I'd say, Salvatore, why are you smelling that fish's head? He goes, when the fish stinks, it starts at the head. He says, remember that it's a, it's, it's a philosophy for life. So the leadership, the founders, the leadership group, they set the tone by what the values are and their code of behavior. So as you hire, you know, you can imagine if you hire a recruiting company, if they don't know your values, that's where it can get diluted. Uh, The people who are successful at it, it's in their onboarding and training. It's in their interviewing, how they interview people. There's a portion of the interview that just doesn't ask people about their values, but there's some sort of example that the person has to tell a story that you can find out maybe that person shares that work ethic or that code of behavior. It's just constantly reinforced. And the behavior of the leadership, the number one thing that you do is that that behavior reflects the values that reflects the vision and the mission. Moving on to a slightly different topic, you talk a lot about founders and, and being very aligned with these these artists doing incredible things. And, and mm-hmm. you know, we've seen founders who've gone on extraordinary journeys. And of course, we don't know many that don't. That makes sense. Because how do they stay sane? You know, how do they keep their minds clear? How do they stay how do they stay focused when going through this incredible tumultuous change? Oh, I think they realize that it's okay that they're not sane. You start with a bit of crazy and you you keep that crazy. So an artist is an artist. So I don't like using the word crazy because even though it is a little crazy as a founder myself. You call yourself crazy. I know because you can't help it, right? (laughs) You can't help it. This building or this work or doing it is your mission in life, right? I mean, you love it. You're very fortunate to have that kind of passion. And then there's the limitations that you have to fill in and augment with the people, part of the human operating system that you develop that are sane, that do bring operations, do bring acumen that you don't have. Because just because you're the artist, that does not mean you're everything. You just have to get along with everyone. The challenge for anybody going through this kind of quite transformational journey, extraordinary journey that they're on, it is hugely stressful. And and maybe when I say don't go crazy, I mean we're saying they're slightly crazy already. That mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. not that's not really what I meant. How do they stay how do they stay focused and how do they stay true to that um, you know the, the mission and purpose? You know, so I don't see that as the problem. I see 
the problem that they stay focused to what they're doing and they don't acknowledge that there's other pieces to the puzzle that in addition to that are as valuable. And by teaching them the respect for people who can do different things or pointing out that they need different things to help them, that's a bridge that seems to keep them crazy, but more comforted. The biggest thing I think is when their advisors or their board members shove some guy down their throats to come in and do something and they hate the guy. That's where it really gets crazy. So on the founder advocate side of it, to teach the person you do need operational excellence, you do need a CFO, right? You need somebody who can really help you with your books or whatever it is. Then who is the right person? Because the poor founder, they have to trust them. They have to like them. What they have to do before that is actually respect the fact that that's a missing piece of their puzzle. This is what we do. We say, this person's got a problem, right? You need somebody like this to help. Yeah. And it's not our place to do that. It, it is hopefully our place, working with people like yourselves, to help individuals to, to learn for themselves what their limitations are, which again is terribly conceited kind of position because I, I take my hat off to all of the people that, that we work with. Here's one way of looking at it too. There's two kinds of people, those who build things and those who suck off those who build things. And that's totally unfair because then there's the other one. There's those who generate revenue and those who suck off those who generate revenue. So there, it's totally unfair, right? But if someone's building something and we are in the technology industry and loving it and so fortunate to be part of it because it's the coolest thing, it's just so awesome. And especially the people who truly are trying to do something. Like I have some guy who's actually trying to figure out the AI with the spinal cord to get people up and out of wheelchairs. I mean, I will do anything to help that guy. I mean, that is so incredible, right? Well, so he's got all sorts of venture people coming in, wanting to give him money because, of course, it's a great idea. And they're trying to shove people down his throat to help him. He does need the help. So instead of being upset, I'm trying to teach him what it is he needs, what kind of personality he's looking for, who he gets along with. And then to not get the board mad or the investors mad, like send me three candidates, right? But I'm teaching him how to interview. So he does need them, they're right? But it's going to be a disaster and he's going to get distracted from actually solving being a paraplegic. And he should be concentrating on that, right? But he still has to get along with these people. Yeah. And it is a very common thread, isn't it? When you, you look at some of the most extraordinary founders, they have the incredibly capable operational individuals behind them. I, you know, I was fortunate to work at Oracle for seven, eight years. And, you know, that was the era of Larry Olson plus Ray Lane. And that kind of two sides of the coin, the person on the mission and the person with the kind of operational capability and excellence and plan. Ray Lane was the guy who said to a bunch of people, yeah, he was awesome. Uh, he said, if you send me an email and I don't know what you want and what it's about without me opening it, I will delete it. I'll never forget it. So since then, I, I teach people how to write email as if they're writing to Ray Lane because it is very efficient. <laughs> so from oh, the most important part. I'd like you to teach me that. That's, um, <laughs> that's great. How to get Ray Lane's attention. That's um, right. That's right. <laughs> But I think this is a really important part of how we help these artists, these founders, these these builders, is to help them to have the, the self-awareness to understand 
where their strengths and weaknesses are and, and the types of people who can really help them. You know, when you think of an artist, like you think of Michelangelo, he wanted to paint the Sistine Chapel. So he had to have scaffolding. Well, the people that built that scaffolding, the scaffolding had to be flexible because it could be that Michelangelo tomorrow morning decided that he forgot the eyelash on that little cherub that was on the other side. So the the structure, the longer the structure can be in support of the art, the longer innovation will continue to happen. That's for those of the people that are on the operations side that are coming in to support the art. If they look at it that way, it lasts longer, the partnership. Obviously, I'm very romantic about founders and people who want to build things. I think that is a, a really interesting analogy. That concept of the flexible framework that allows us to continue to, to build and to follow the vision, I think, is, is a very powerful one. One of the other, just again, just to change tack, maybe just one more kind of area to focus on. As venture capitalists, we get very hung up on uh, cost of acquisition when it comes to customers. And we look at this in minute detail. And I wonder whether we need to be also thinking about applying some similar kind of thinking to employee retention. Because we see some pretty, you know, worrying statistics around how much it cost me to acquire a, an employee? How much does it cost me to get them up to speed? How long does it take them to deliver value? And, and then they're, they're leaving when we see quite high levels of turnover. Do you recognize that kind of problem in San Francisco? In the beginning, I think the people that the founder will attract are the kinds of people that are attracted to founders. So people who start with somebody, they get the building something and they are very dedicated to the mission. So in the beginning, there is a huge acknowledgement and camaraderie. That's where the tribe is so important because you know that you're supporting something that's bigger than just any of the people. Then as you get bigger where the break happens, and it depends on how strong the culture is from the beginning, the volume becomes more important than the art. So job security, job onboarding, promotions, OKR, performance reviews, all of the systems that go into, and they are good systems, they're not bad systems, but they become more important than the innovation and the art. That's where I see a break between a company that is built to last and one that might have trouble. You recognize that problem in terms of employee retention? Do you see that being an issue across the tech scene? The people who are dedicated to the art and the mission usually are committed. So the retention there isn't as big of a deal until the balance swings to a process. Then some of the artists will leave. So then there is a retention problem. And, and that varies on how strong the culture is. Because if you can get the right people in to help them scale the people, then retention seems to not be as big of a problem. San Francisco Bay Area, to tell you the truth, retention is all about just money right now. You can't compete with Google or Facebook. I mean, to try to recruit right now sucks. So the only thing is because money has become, and there's still it's still going to be the capital of innovation. We're, we're still the greatest place in the world. Just going through 
drowning in money and easy money, which softens everything. So slowly but surely, companies that are doing something that's good coming out, and it's not just about money. You can see people are dehydrated for mission, especially people 35 and under. They need to be connected to something that's not just about money. So right now, you can't really talk about retention in the SFB area because it is all about money. That's fair. But I I think the last point is really important. I mean, I I do think our companies have got to stay focused on mission and vision and Mm -hmm. culture if they're to hold on to a sub-35 employee with a huge amount of opportunity in front Mm -hmm. of them. And I just don't think you can take your eye off that because the, the dilutive impact of losing great employees is as impactful as the dilutive impact of losing great customers. Here's a good example. There's a wonderful startup that just got acquired by a huge company outside of the United States. So this startup is going to have to, they have about 100 people and they're going to have to triple like in the next three hours. That's how big an acquisition, they get to keep their brand. They've got a great brand. They're really wonderful. So we're helping them with their, you know, redefining or morphing their values and their mission and all that. So the employees in the startup can welcome times three new people coming in. And I talked to a board member yesterday from the large company, and he directed me to the founder of this large company that's like 40 years old, 50 years old. And the founder of this 50-year-old company sat down and wrote what the values were for the company and why. And it's this little tiny book that, you know, it's been slightly modified over the 50 years, but extremely successful company, a brand that is known everywhere. And so the marriage between this big company and the little company is going to work probably they have a better chance than most others because they do share the values. But I was so impressed with this guy talking about a founder and they still are alive. These values are so important to how they operate their company, even they're mega successful. Doesn't that just make your heart sing? Yeah, it it really does. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's extraordinary to hear. Maureen, I've probably taken enough of your time. I tell you what, I would be really interested if any recommended reading? I, I get the feeling that you, you have a pretty eclectic kind of reading habits. You take your inspiration from lots of different sources. Like we read everything, you know, anything. We have a library, everything that's new that comes out because there's so many great things out there, great advice. Although we do go back to Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato because in Western civilization, how you treat people, leadership, how you understand the human operating system does go back to them. So that classic, so my recommendation, number one for a weekend reading is The Rhetoric by Aristotle. <laughs> I've actually read it. It's a challenge. I'm, I'm willing to accept. <laughs> I'll come back to you with some other, maybe a suggestion <laughs> on some ancient Chinese philosophy. Funny, you know, Simon Sinek, all of the Storm and Norman porn and, you know, how you run a meeting, we have a whole list. I mean, we're always sharing all the the coolest, newest things. You do go back, you do take it back though. And it does go back to Aristotle. And actually we're doing a study now with Eastern philosophy too, combining them. It's, It's quite fascinating that there are some classic truisms about people working with each other well, that are classic. As a Greek, I approve. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny in Dublin, you know, when we, we work with them, they go, oh, you know, we don't want to be like an American. And we go, okay, now hold on. It was a Greek guy that started this. Whole thing. <laughs> it wasn't an American. <laughs> so then they laugh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. On, on that note, well, that's really, it's always fascinating talking to you, Maureen, and I, I really appreciate the work you're doing in the, in the space and with some of our portfolio as well. Well, they're very lucky to have you helping them. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you. Thanks, Maureen. Thank you so much.